0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the Triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 62 Truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall he be, and, and as a tottering hence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, the longest mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray together. Subdue our souls unto thee, O Lord, for thou art our very patience, that we rejecting the uncertainty of riches and despising all earthly vanity may follow thee alone. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, of whom cometh my salvation. Glory be to the Son who is my salvation and the rock of my might. Glory be to the Holy Ghost who spake by the prophets of the power and mercy of God, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We come to question 32 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Well, last week we said that effectual calling is the free gift of God that changes us from an unbeliever to a believer. When God effectually calls someone, he infuses the grace of faith into them so that they freely believe on the Lord Jesus and embrace him as Savior. Now, in addition to this gift of faith that the Holy Spirit works in us, there are other benefits that those who are effectually called partake of in this life. So here in question 32, the Catechism highlights three of these benefits, which are justification, adoption, and sanctification. In the following weeks, we will define each of these benefits in a great detail, but for now we just want to establish the fact that if you are effectually called, then these three benefits necessarily follow. In proof of this reality, we read in Romans 8 verse 30 that, quote, those whom he did predestinate, them he also called, And those whom he called, them he also justified. And those whom he justified, them he also glorified. Historically, this verse has been called the golden chain of redemption because it teaches that those whom God grabs by that first link of foreknowledge and predestination will infallibly be brought by him to the final link in that chain, which is glorification. You can think of this passage as kind of like God placing you at the bottom of a golden staircase that climbs up into the heavenly city. You did not choose to be placed there. God simply loved you and called you and put you there by his grace. That was his effectual call on your life. But once he has called you, that same Holy Spirit that made you to believe in the first place continues to be with you. And as you cooperate with him, he helps you to walk up each step onward and upward until you reach glory. You are the one who is really and freely choosing to walk up those steps. But as Philippians 2.13 says, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the mystery of how God saves us. God works in us the grace of believing in him, and we freely cooperate with that grace. Not always, perfectly, and often inconsistent, inconsistently. We have our doubts, our struggles, and our remaining sins. But we can take confidence that if God effectually called us, he will also justify and glorify us. For as it says also in Philippians 1.6, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us arise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. These are the words of God. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying, left no seed. And the second took her, and died. Neither left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err? Because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Let us pray. Father, as we consider the life that is to come and ponder what resurrection and eternity with you shall be like, we confess that we are far too carnal in our thinking. It is hard for us to imagine any joy or pleasure or love that surpasses what we enjoy in a good marriage or enjoy with our bodily senses. And yet you have promised to us a life of bliss and fullness of joy in your presence. For as it says in Psalm 1611, at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we ask now for your spirit to be at work within us, to make us into more spiritual creatures with spiritual desires that transcend this world, which is passing away. Make us to live for eternity, for we ask this in Jesus' name and amen. What will life in the new heavens and new earth be like? What will that future state of glory and resurrection be like for the saints? The Bible teaches that when we die and our soul is separated from our body, our soul is that immaterial part of us that knows and loves when we die, that soul immediately goes to heaven to be with God. Paul says in Philippians 1, 22 to 23, that to live in the body is fruitful labor for the Christian, but to depart and be with Christ is far better. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, referring to our body, were dissolved, We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So in this life, Christians groan to be with God. And when we die, our soul is welcomed into the Father's house. And God himself becomes our dwelling place. He becomes our habitation. He is our house, not made with hands. We behold him in his essence, and our soul is made radiant. It is there in heaven with God that our glorified soul awaits the final resurrection and reunion with the body. This final resurrection is spoken of in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two to 44, where the apostle says, The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So, the final destination for the Christian is not to be a disembodied soul in heaven, though Paul says that is far better than being here. Our final destination is the resurrection of the dead, wherein God, by his power, reunites soul and body never to die again. This is the eternal life that the resurrected Son of God, who has a body, has purchased for us. And it is this power and resurrection that the Sadducees of Jesus' day did not believe in. In our text this morning, the Sadducees pose a question for Jesus that is a kind of reductio ad absurdum. What is a reductio ad absurdum? Well, it's an argument where you take the premises of your opponent and follow them out to their logical end. And the, the intent is that the logical and necessary conclusion of those premises is so absurd that, of course, nobody would believe that. For example, uh, against atheists, Christians could run the reductio that if there is no God, as atheists claim, well, then there is no objective basis for morality, and therefore all of their moral objections to the God of the Bible are just arbitrary, right? Who cares? On your principles, who cares? Or to give a very different example, if the world is flat, then there must be an edge And because no one has seen or found this edge or fallen off it, therefore it is absurd to think the world is flat. So that's the basic structure of a reductio ad absurdum. And this is the argument that the Sadducees deploy against Jesus regarding what is in their mind the absurdity of the resurrection. Now, before we look at their argument, let me first say a word about who the Sadducees were. Who were the Sadducees? Well, Uh, The best that we can conclude from what Scripture and other ancient sources tell us is that the Sadducees were uh, an upper class or an aristocratic group of Jews, and they had strong ties to the high priesthood in Jerusalem. We see this in Acts uh, 5.18. Uh, It is possible that they received their name, Sadducees, uh, and their lineage from Zadok, and you can kind of hear it, uh, Sadducees, Zadok, Zadok and thus laid claim to being the divinely appointed heirs of the high priesthood. So uh, when Ezekiel sees the visionary temple at the end of uh, Ezekiel, uh, God tells him uh, it's going to be the line of Zadok because they were faithful that are going to minister in the high priesthood. And then there's these other Levites who were less faithful. They can you know stand at the gates or be guards and do other things. But The high priesthood, it's got to be from uh, the line of Zadok. So the Sadducees uh, perhaps laid claim to being that uh, uh, biblical lineage, descendant, and rightful heir of the high priesthood. As to their doctrine, the things they believed, uh, Mark tells us explicitly here in verse 18 that they just did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, We are also, also told in Acts 23 verse 8 the following... The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So remember when Paul is uh, uh, being brought by the Jews for trial and he recognizes, oh, there's some Sadducees and Pharisees here. And he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And then he splits his opponents because half of them uh, believed in it and the other half uh, did not. So Paul uses this uh, to his advantage that the Sadducees and Pharisees are uh, kind of mortal enemies over this uh, theological issue. Uh, Josephus, uh, who's a very important uh, first century Jewish historian, he lived through the fall of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70, he tells us this, but the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies nor do they regard the observation of anything else besides what the law, referring to the law of Moses, enjoins them. And then elsewhere he adds that they reject God's sovereignty over man's actions. So the Sadducees rejected any scripture outside the law of Moses. So the Pentateuch alone, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was their canon. So they're already working with, you know, half a Bible or a quarter of a Bible for us Christians. And one of their great points of contention with the Pharisees was this doctrine of the resurrection and uh, the existence and uh, power of spiritual substances, angels, the immortal soul, and so forth. So those are their premises. That's the premises of the Sadducees. And what they try to do against Jesus is take the Pharisees' premises and run them out to absurdity. So how do they try to do this? Well, let's turn uh, and expound our text, uh, starting in verse 19. So the Sadducees come to Jesus. They say, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. So note first, who do they appeal to? Moses, he's their their highest authority. He's the one who wrote the law. And then uh, they refer to this law, which uh, we heard earlier, uh, Joe Reed, which probably had you kind of scratching your head. Like, it's kind of an odd law. Uh, This is Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. um, And this is often called uh, the Leveret Marriage Law. This word uh, leveret just comes from the Latin word uh, lever, which means a husband's brother. So uh, a leveret marriage is literally a marriage to a brother-in-law. Elsewhere, the man who fulfills this law is uh, called the kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, this is the goel. So uh, we're given the purpose of this law uh, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, which states, It shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, and then here's the reason, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So, uh, because of the tribal inheritance that each family received in the promised land, it was important for a male heir to carry on his father's name and ensure that the inheritance God had given them stayed within the family. One of the most uh, famous instances of Leveret marriage uh, that I think probably everyone knows is the story of Ruth. So remember, Ruth is a uh, a Moabite, and she marries into the tribe of Judah, but her husband dies, and then her father-in-law, Elimelech, he also dies. And so both uh, Naomi and Ruth are widowed and in danger of seeing their family line come to an end. Of course, in God's providence, Ruth meets Boaz. And Boaz fulfills this duty of the brother-in-law after a closer relative declines. So Boaz, uh, he marries Ruth voluntarily and he raises up seed, not for his own name, but for Elimelech's name. And it is by this obedience to the law in Deuteronomy 25 that Ruth ends with the little genealogy. Obed is born, Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David, and from that line of Elimelech, eventually we have the birth of Jesus. So no uh, obedience to this law, no Jesus. Now, uh, while this law might sound strange to our modern ears, it was God's way of both providing for widows and also the means by which uh, his promise to Abraham could be fulfilled. So remember God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. It was to give Abraham seed as numerous as the stars and also to give him the land of Canaan as his inheritance. And so for um, a family name to die out was kind of like to have a star go out in the sky. We read in Galatians 3.19, Paul answers the question, if you've ever wondered, you know, why did God give them the law? He says, what purpose then does the Mosaic law serve? And Paul answers his own question. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So, uh, God makes this promise to Abraham. There's going to be this seed. There's all these glorious promises he gives him. And then Paul says he gives him the law all those hundreds of years later to protect the existence of the people until the seed, the Messiah, comes. So God gave these ceremonial and judicial laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, laws like this odd leveret marriage law, as a temporary and typological safeguard to preserve the people of Israel until Jesus comes. Jesus is the seed God promised to Abraham, and by faith in Jesus, we also become heirs with Abraham together with him. Okay, so that's the background to this law that the Sadducees are now going to use to prove the absurdity of the resurrection. Continuing in verses 20 to 23, here's now their reductio. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife and he died without leaving any seed. The second took her and died. Neither left he any seed and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, and this is there like if you think they're going to rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. So the argument of the Sadducees is that if there is a resurrection from the dead, then in that resurrected state, uh, this woman's going to have seven husbands. And because having seven husbands, everyone agrees, is contrary to God's law and violates the one-flesh monogamous union of marriage, therefore, there can be no resurrection. So you can see that's a a sound argument, perhaps. Uh, They are perhaps making uh, the right conclusion, uh, given their premises. So how does Jesus respond to this attempted reductio of the Sadducees? Well, he begins uh, by insulting them. Verse 24. Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? All right. so there's times... When ignorant people ask stupid questions and the best way to respond is to not answer at all. Titus 3, 9 to 11. It says in Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. But then in the next verse it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which occasion is this? Well, uh, Jesus chooses the latter and chooses to answer them according to their folly so that they will not be wise in their own eyes. So the way he begins is with this stern rebuke. You are in error because you don't know the scriptures, neither the power of God, right? In other words, you have no idea what you are talking about. And just in case they didn't understand this rebuke the first time, you'll notice he says this again at the end of his response in verse 27, ye therefore do greatly err. So Jesus is challenging the false assumptions behind their question, which they have arrived at because they don't know the Bible or God's power. And remember, he is saying this to men who style themselves experts in the scriptures. So in verse 25, he tells them what their false premise is. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. So whereas the Sadducees argued that there is no resurrection because that would make marriage eternal and create all kinds of uh, polygamous situations, Jesus says they've got it backwards. Marriage is not eternal, but the soul is And in the resurrected state, men do not marry and women are not given in marriage, but are like the angels who cannot die and find all their satisfaction in God. So, the problem with the Sadducees is that uh, they are enslaved to their carnal senses. And therefore, when they read the law of Moses, they come to it with a warped and corrupt mind. And therefore, they warp and corrupt the scriptures. In their minds, the only sense in which a man rises again and lives on after death is in his children. That is the only resurrection or raising up that they can imagine. And because the Sadducees denied that there even is a spirit or an immortal soul, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.6 comes to pass, that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life if you come to the Bible, you try to read the Bible with false assumptions, uh, you're going to read it and the letters will slay you. False assumptions lead to false readings, which leads to false conclusions, which lead to ignorant questions. And this is the great error Jesus wants to expose. So Jesus says that when we rise from the dead, We are not rejoined in marriage to the spouse or spouses we were married to on earth. Marriage is a temporary institution for the raising of children, for help and companionship. But as Paul says in Ephesians 5, marriage is a great mystery that will give way to a reality far greater, which is the union of Christ and the church, the union of God with the human soul. Now, many people hear this. um, And I think, you know, uh, 10-year-old Aaron would have heard this and would have been very disappointed. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Many people find this teaching about no marriage and no sex in the resurrection to be a bit of a letdown. But that is only because we are thinking like Sadducees. We are allowing our carnal senses and sentiments to blind us to the far greater love and intimacy that we shall have with God and all the saints, including our former spouse or spouses, if they were a believer, in the resurrection. The truth is that however great and pleasurable your marriage may be, and I hope that it is, um, it is not worthy to be compared with the love and pleasure we shall enjoy in the world to come. Even in this life, there are far higher pleasures than sexual intimacy and marital friendship, right? Take heed to this, young men, young women. There are far higher pleasures than sex and marriage, namely the pleasures of knowing and loving God. This is why Jesus can say in Luke fourteen twenty six, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. To be a Christian is to love God in such a way that nothing and no one else competes with God in your affections. You love God even more than life itself. And so if you have not experienced this pleasure of the soul, this pleasure of union with God that brings peace and gladness and indestructible joy, will then search your heart. Consider what it is that you really love and are living for. Because no matter your state, whether single or married or widowed or divorced, the love of God and abu- an abundant joy is constantly and always held out to you. Unlike a husband or wife, whose time and attention and affections are limited, God is unlimited. God is not bound by time or matter. He does not grow weary. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. And therefore, God alone can truly be your constant and perpetual companion. Moreover, whatever goodness or beauty you find in your spouse, whatever loveliness there is in them, Well, God is the source and font of that goodness and beauty and loveliness. For it is from him that anyone has those qualities in the first place. God has all of those things essentially, infinitely, and endlessly. And so if you find it a letdown, that there is no sex or marriage in the resurrection, uh, consider that when you were a child, uh, you thought that eating ice cream or chocolate or playing in the mud was the highest pleasure there was. Right Before puberty, you thought girls had cooties. A newborn baby has no conception or ability to begin to understand sexual marital love. Well, in this life, we are babies, and we cannot even begin to imagine the joys that await us in the resurrection. When the Apostle Paul was caught up into paradise, he says, I heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So the things that Paul saw and heard were so great that God had to give Paul a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. And by the way, that was just heaven. That was not even the full resurrection and consummation that awaits us. Isaiah 64 4 says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, your imagination, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In Isaiah sixty-five seventeen, God says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former life shall not be remembered nor come into mind. So the joys that await us in the resurrection are so great that it's going to make this life like a dream, like a distant memory. As it says also in Ecclesiastes 5:20, for God will not uh, for for the man will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So again I say, if that joy is foreign to you, search your heart. Consider your loves. And then ask God to help you reorder those loves so that he, he is utmost in your affections. Remember, uh, if, if your spouse is a believer, however much you love and enjoy their company now, uh, you're going to far more enjoy their love and company in the resurrection. And if there's anything you don't like about your spouse, well, they're not going to have anything to Uh, dislike uh, in the resurrection, okay? But yes, you can see this is hard. We are babies. It's hard for us to understand this. Well, returning to our text, Jesus having stated their errors regarding marriage and the resurrection, he goes on to prove from the law of Moses that the dead rise again. And this is a great test for us to just pause here and ask ourselves, if we were in Jesus' shoes and we had to prove the resurrection uh, from the dead, but you could only use the Old Testament, uh, where would you go? What verses would you use? Perhaps uh, some of the Psalms come to mind. David speaks of God not leaving his soul in shale in Psalm 16. Or we might think of Job who famously says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job nineteen twenty-five to 26. Well, of all the passages Jesus could have used to prove the resurrection, he limits himself to only what the Sadducees considered to be authoritative, namely the law of Moses. So, okay, can't use Job, can't use Psalms, where are you going to go? in the Pentateuch to prove the resurrection. Let's see what Jesus says, verses 26 to 27. And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush, this is the burning bush, God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Well, there's your proof text. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That proves the resurrection. We can all go home. (laughs) All right, perhaps you're scratching your head and wondering how is it that that proves the resurrection? What does Jesus see in this text that the Sadducees and most uh, biblical commentators uh, are blind to? So the passage Jesus cites is Exodus 3.6. God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. This is, you know, take off your sandals. The the ground you're standing on is holy. And then he reveals his name. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, there are uh, two ways in which this passage proves the resurrection. First is from the fact that, as Jesus says, God is the God of the dead, uh, God of the living and not the dead. So let me kind of put Jesus' argument into a syllogism. Uh, The argument runs as follows. So premise one is dead bodies cannot worship God or have him as their God. So that's premise one. Premise two, when God revealed this name to Moses, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. Conclusion, therefore... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still be alive in some sense, and this proves the existence of the immortal soul, and because it belongs naturally to the soul to be united to the body, since that is how God created it, by that same power of God, the body and soul of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shall be reunited in the resurrection." So let me just summarize again. So if God is the God of the living, as the Sadducees do accept, right? This is their own uh, uh, scripture. And if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they also accept, because it's their scripture, well, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, and therefore they shall rise again. So that's the first argument or the first um, syllogism by which this proves the resurrection, the second way this can prove the resurrection is by remembering the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So again, I'll give you the, the syllogism. The argument runs as follows. Premise one, God promised to Abraham in Genesis thirteen fifteen quote, all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever, end quote. So God makes this promise. You, you see it. It's yours. I'm going to give it to you. Premise two, well, Abraham died not having received that promise. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13, and 16 says this. Conclusion, therefore, either God is a liar or he keeps his word. And one day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shall be resurrected and the land, the whole land, shall be given to them. So both of these arguments demonstrate that the Sadducees have not rightly interpreted their own scriptures. And Jesus has used their highest authority, Moses, to prove what they reject. In Matthew's version of this same interaction, it closes with this, and when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I'll close with this. One of the things that our world and our region is in desperate need of Is hope. And if you believe the Sadducees, that is a pretty hopeless doctrine to hold. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Our land is filled with hopeless people who think they can treat a sickness of the heart, a sickness of the soul with prescription drugs, with medication, with surgery, with money, with things that promise to make us happy, but cannot even touch the spiritual part of us that needs healing. Well, Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And it is he alone who can touch our immaterial soul and heal us. Only the God who never changes and who is infinitely happy in himself can give you a new heart with new desires that shall be fulfilled and make you into a tree of life. As Paul says in Romans 5, 5, the hope that God gives is a hope that will never put you to shame. And why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. God wants to give you his very self, his Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you are receiving the down payment and guarantee of a resurrection to come. And so forsake your earthly and carnal hopes. Lift your heart to heaven and say with the psalmist in Psalm 43, 5, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the comfort of the scriptures. We thank you for beating down the false teaching of the Sadducees, and we ask that you would beat down in our day the many false teaching out there that says we don't even have a soul or that this is all there is. Or that there is no God. There is no higher law. There is no life to come. There is no resurrection. Oh God, give our land and our people a living hope in the living God. In an eternal life that is to come. And will make this life truly as a dream. God, in this life, as we desire to draw closer to you. Help us by your Holy Spirit. To truly love you. With the love that you deserve, so that we can love our neighbor even as ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name and amen. amen. It says in Psalm 42 As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Every Lord's Day, God invites us to appear before him. If your soul is thirsty, then you are in the right place. Because here at this table is the fountain of living waters. Jesus Christ told to the woman at the well, The water that I shall give will become in you a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Only the infinite God can satisfy the unquenchable thirst Of your soul. And here in this meal, a solemn promise is given that if you hope in God and look to Him, He will give you eternal life. So come and receive what you desire. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this forsake your worldly hopes and hope in the God who shall never disappoint. And secondly, please do join us for our feast together, and I'm going to just pray real quick for the food. As soon as we dismiss, please do uh, head on over there. Father, we thank you that we can uh, keep the feasting going. God, we ask that uh, you would bless uh, the food that these hands have prepared, bless it to our bodies, and nourish uh, our body, uh, nourish uh, the unity of this congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, and amen. amen. Go in peace.